Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, everybody. You're listening to New Books in Politics. I'm Ryan Riley, and today I'm talking with Stephen Hill. Stephen Hill is an author, lecturer, and political professional. Besides being an expert on Europe, Stephen Hill is co-founder of FairVote, the Center for Voting and Democracy in Washington, D.C. Today we're talking about his book, Europe's Promise, Why the European Way is the Best Hope in an Insecure Age. Stephen, thank you for joining me. It's my great pleasure, Ryan. So I'd like to begin by asking you what inspired you to write this book. Well, I had been um, traveling back and forth to Europe for a few years, mostly uh, with a fairly narrow research focus. I was studying the political systems in Europe, in particular their proportional representation electoral systems, which leads to multi-party democracy. And I was interested in how that affected voter turnout as well as um, uh, you know the um, the ability to form consensus in government, the uh, you know the uh, how how uh, closely policy conforms to public opinion. Um, uh, researchers like Aaron Leipart have done really interesting work in that regard, and so I was really interested in studying that pretty narrow focus. But the more I learned about Europe, uh, for example, about healthcare systems, pension systems, um, you know how they have a more um, broadly shared prosperity, I just became even more interested in in branching out and broadening my research interests. And that led to uh, about 10 years of going back and forth and researching um, my book, Europe's Promise, to really try and, you know, help Americans understand better what what Europe is about compared to many of the stereotypes and myths you tend to see in the American media. Who did you hope to reach with the book? Um, well, I hope to reach uh, both specialists um, in the United States as well as the general reader, uh, pretty much anyone who had an interest in Europe. The book is really written in a way for the general reader, yet it has enough facts and research that it, it also would work for specialists and Europeanists, as they're called. Um, and in fact, one of the um, great satisfactions I've had with the book is that it has been embraced by uh, U.S. professors who have been studying Europe for years and really um, you know, were far more well-versed in some of these things than I was before I began my research. And they've really embraced the book because it's 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 it, I mean each chapter is about a different aspect of Europe: healthcare, pensions, social systems, immigration, and then it knits them together in a way that makes a case that there is a distinctive, uh, what I call European way, and I compare that to the American way, and I show how in many ways the European way is really better adapted and more advantageous for coping with the. Um, the, the challenges of the 21st century. And so uh, I think many of the Europeanist professors in the U.S. really have found it a good thing to use for their students because, you know, they can just use individual chapters about a particular 
um, topic or they can show the comprehensive big view picture. It's also, interestingly, been embraced by many Europeans. I've given uh, lectures all over Europe, including to the European Commission and many high-level uh, Europeans, because it's almost helped Europeans to understand their own system better. Because, you know, Europe, in some ways, when you look at it in the headlines, it looks like a, a bunch of disparate member states, Ger Germany, Greece, Italy, uh, Spain. And it, it's hard sometimes to see the big picture of what Europe is becoming. And so it, it really, in some ways, helped Europeans to understand their own system better. Uh, you know, Europeans aren't used to thinking about things like, say, proportional representation and how it creates multi-party democracy because just about everywhere in Europe uses it. So it's just, you know, it's just considered normal. I mean, there's the old adage, we don't know who discovered water, but we can be certain it wasn't a fish. Um, it, it, was, huh. it was a flying fish. And so often we don't understand the nature of the sea in which we swim. You have to get outside of that sea in order to understand it. And so in that way, it's really, it has helped uh, a certain number of Europeans to understand their own system better. So that's what also has been very gratifying. When, we, when you talk about Europe, uh, what's included in that? Um, when I talk about Europe, I, in the book, I c consider what I call the EU+, plus, European Union+, plus. so the 27, uh, now 28, about to become 28 member states of the European plus Norway and Switzerland. So that's really what, uh, you know, what I, what I when talk about Europe. I'm, that's what I'm talking about in my book, Europe's Promise. And if you could, can you introduce some of the characteristics that, def, that m make these countries special, that made you want to write a book about them? Well, I mean, you know, there's many, many differences, um, but when you boil down... Um, the European way and compare it to the American way, um, what it really boils down to is that Europe has what I call in the book social capitalism and the United States has what I call Wall Street capitalism. And, you know, social capitalism is really about gearing your values as well as your institutions to create a much more broadly shared prosperity. And Wall Street capitalism is still pretty much trickle-down capitalism. It, you know, more and more of the wealth has trickled into the pockets of fewer and fewer people. Um, and, you know, but I have to emphasize that despite what some Americans say about Europe, this is not socialism. This is capitalism. Um, you know, Europe has the largest economy in the world. Um, it, 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 in fact, Europe's still about, you know, a quarter of the world's gross domestic product. Its economy is larger than the United States and India combined. But in addition, Europe has more Fortune 500 companies than the United States and China combined. Um, it's, many of its member states are routinely ranked at the top of the list of the World Economic Forum's ratings of the most competitive economies. It has more small businesses that create more jobs than we have in the United States. So this is not socialism, as Americans are used to thinking of that term. This is capitalism. It's firmly capitalist in its orientation, but it's a different type of capitalism. It's what I call, as I said earlier, social capitalism. It's designed to figure out 
you know, okay, capitalism generates all this wealth. There's no question that capitalism is the greatest wealth generator that humans have ever devised. But there's an outstanding question there. Who gets that wealth? Whose pockets does it flow into? Europe has figured out how to harness this capitalist engine and create this more broadly shared prosperity, whereas here in the United States, as I said earlier, it's Wall Street capitalism. It's still trickle-down. I mean, you know, the average American, just to give one example, um, hasn't really seen any increase in their wages in 25 years, even though the productivity of American workers has gone is very high and more profits and more wealth has been generated in that 25-year period. But it, for the most part, it's flowed into the pockets of fewer and fewer people to the point where the 400 wealthiest Americans um, now have $1.3 trillion in wealth, which is as much as the GDP of the country of India with a billion people. So we're living in a time of extreme economic inequality, and that's what's reflected in these in the difference between social capitalism and Wall Street capitalism. One of the things you say in the book is that this broadly shared prosperity, greater equality of wealth, is also supportive of business. And that, that seems to be what you're saying now. How does that work? Because uh, I think a lot of people would think that if you want to distribute wealth more evenly, that's going to be burdensome or less beneficial for business. Um, yeah, that's the myth, but it's really, uh, in practice, is, is not really true. I mean, you can look at uh, member states in Europe, like Sweden, for example, which has higher tax rates than we have here in the United States. They have a higher um, uh, government sector in the sense that government consumes more of the gross domestic product um, in all sorts of ways that you can measure things. Sweden, as well as Germany and, and uh, France and other countries, are higher in these ways um, in what's considered having a bigger state than what we have here in the United States. And yet they um, all have, uh, with the exception of France, all have lower unemployment than we have um, they all have uh, better health care systems, universal health care. They're paying far less per capita for that health care. Uh, it's consuming about 17% of our gross domestic product. And in these other places in Europe, it's consuming maybe 8, 9, 10%. Um, so, you know, these myths just, in, in fact, aren't true. The evidence, the facts just don't support them. And um, yet they persist in, in the U.S. with a, a great deal of stubbornness. So, and, and there are real reasons why that is, uh, you know, it, like, for example, there's all sorts of research out there that shows that if you give workers adequate vacation, adequate rest, it actually makes them more productive workers. Um, and yet, you know, here in the United States, in fact, in Europe, they call us the no vacation nation because um, we're one of the few nations in the world that does not have mandatory paid vacations. Uh, there are literally Americans who are working full-time and are, are not qualified for, uh, for any vacation at all. And, um, you know, and, and many other Americans maybe have two weeks of paid vacation, whereas in Europe, four, five, six weeks of paid vacation, depending on the member state, is the norm. And it, there's just no evidence that it has hurt their economies. Um, you know, these economies are doing extremely well, most of them, with the exceptions of, you know, uh, Greece, uh, Portugal and, and Spain and Ireland to some degree, which is starting to do better. 
Um, Italy's co- economy is having some trouble. So there are there is a mixed uh, experience there in Europe. But most of the member states in, in the European Union are, are doing better than we are in the United States in this regard. Is it that governments are taking social burdens off businesses that businesses would have to bear otherwise? I mean, are governments making businesses more competitive? Yes, they do in, in certain ways. For example, um, in the U.S., our health care model is based on the workplace. You pretty much get health care through your, um, your employer. And for many Americans who lose their job or if they move to another job uh, with an employer that doesn't provide health care, they're out of luck unless they can afford to pay out of pocket, which is extremely expensive with escalating health care premiums. And so it puts a lot of pressure on American businesses to pay these escalating health care premiums to maintain health care um, in, in the United States, whereas in, in Europe, health care is universal. You receive health care uh, not in a way that's tied to your employer. You receive it as part of an individual mandate simply because you live in that country. Now, the employers do pay a certain amount into uh, the health care system per employee, but they because of the way they have structured their health care, they're able to have a better handle on these escalating costs. And so for you as an employer, um, you have a better idea of what your costs are going to be per employee from year to year. And that allows you to better plan and to, uh, to, you know, to really have a handle on, on what these health care costs are going to be. Um, whereas here in the U.S., you know, employers uh, are seeing just truly skyrocketing premiums, and there's a constant pressure from the employer to push some of that onto the uh, onto the backs of the employee, and then the employee resists, and that creates um, antagonism between employee and employer. Even sometimes it creates uh, labor strife and even even strikes, and so this is tremendously disruptive to um, the. Uh, to the to the economy to have this kind of relationship, and Europe is doing other things as well in that regard um, that uh, creates I think a more harmonious situation between employer employee, and that in turn is is better for the economy. Why do you think European countries have chosen to structure their healthcare costs this way, and the United States has not? Well, for Europe, they've 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 st- chosen to do this because it's cheaper. And um, they can provide better quality health care for less money. And in the U.S., um, you know, the, the health care system is basically has been in control uh, under the control of, of for-profit insurance companies who uh, have maintained their monopoly on health care. Now, that's go- about to change to some degree in the United States in 2014 when Obamacare comes online, but uh, I'm somewhat skeptical on how much it's going to change. Certainly more people will get health care, but it's not going to do very much about costs. And, you know, the way they can keep costs down in in Europe is um, it it really comes down to a a very basic thing. Um, You know, contrary to myth, most European member states do not have single payer or socialized medicine. They have that in the U.K., they have it in Sweden, but um, most member states actually have something completely different than that or the for-profit privatized 
system that we have here in the United States. And Germany is a classic example. The backbone of the German healthcare system is about 200 private insurance companies, private insurance companies, just like we have here in the United States. But there's one key difference. Their private insurance companies are nonprofit and ours are for-profit. And when you really boil it down, it turns out that the difference between having um, effective, efficient, cost-effective health care is not single-payer versus what we have now. It's for-profit versus non-profit. And there's different ways to structure a non-profit system. It turns out that the incentives of a for-profit system, and I have nothing against for-profit or, or capitalism, uh, you know, in, the, in, in the proper place, it's been a tremendous wealth generator, as I said earlier. But it turns out when it comes to health care, the incentives of a for-profit system are perverse because the incentives of any for-profit system are, one, to um, drive up your costs, uh, excuse me, your prices as high as you can get away with, hence escalating health care premiums because they want to get as much money out of their customers as they can. And then the other incentive in a for-profit system is to drive down your costs because the difference between your costs and your what you charge for your service is your profit. And in, in a, a for-profit health care system, driving down costs means giving as few services as possible, hence things like... Um, you know, pre-existing condition clauses and all these sorts of things. Um, and so that's what really prevents the U.S. from getting a handle on the, the escalating costs of our healthcare system is the fact that it's a for-profit system. You know, when you have a non-profit system, um, like, for example, if you go into a French doctor's office, um, you can ask them for the menu of what they provide there, and they can literally give you a list of what they do there and how much they charge. And that builds in accountability because then you can see if your bill reflects what they say they're going to charge. But, you know, here in the U.S. healthcare system, I mean, many Americans have had the experience that I've had recently where you get your, you know, something in the mail from your health insurance company and, and they're billing you for something, but you can't even tell what. It doesn't even say what it is. Maybe there's a code there, and then you've got to call them up and ask them, what is this code? I mean, there's no transparency built into the system because the, the for-profit insurance companies have no incentive to do that. And so for this, these reasons and many others, there's, there's just uh, no incentives to create, to bring down costs in our system. And that uh, is what keeps the costs higher. And unfortunately, the Obamacare reforms that have been passed don't modify that enough, I don't think, to really make a big dent on this. So we'll see how it works out. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that it, I'm wrong, but uh, it seems to me that we still have a ways to go when it comes to health care reform. Can you explain a little more how the incentives work in a nonprofit system and why there are as many as 200 different nonprofit insurers in Germany? Are they competing and what are they competing on the basis of they are competing um but it's not necessarily on costs because what they are what what happens in these systems is that the um representatives from the healthcare industry so the insurance companies um the healthcare professionals uh representatives like doctors and nurses as well as consumer representatives and government representatives they sit down every year or two and they work out what's going to be charged for 
just about every service that's, that they provide. It's kind of like what we do with Medicare. And that helps to keep costs down. And that's why Medicare is such an efficient system compared to the for-profit system that we have throughout the rest of the United States. So what they compete on in these 200 insurance companies is, um, for the most part, is quality of care rather than cost. And, of course, you know, I mean, there's 200 of them, but they're distributed in different regions of the country, too. So in each region, there's not that many. There, there'll be fewer in each region. But within that region, they'll be uh, competing over quality of care, um, you know, other incentives that they can provide that uh, for you uh, as a consumer to enjoy receiving care from them um, and these sorts of things. So, you know, that's really what, it, what it's about in these, in these countries. And I should say that, you know, uh, doctors, for example, in these uh, nonprofit systems don't make nearly as much money as they make in the American for-profit system. Um, you know, I mean, in the European nonprofit systems, doctors still make a very good salary. I mean, they're considered, you know, highly paid. But in in the American system, many doctors are practically in businessmen and businesswomen. They're in they're in, in business. Um, they you know they have uh, relationships with drug drug and pharmaceutical companies to prescribe their medicines. They have profit sharing. They have all sorts of things in the uh, U.S. for-profit system, and that's just really f- a foreign way of thinking for doctors in Europe. They are there to provide a, a quality get rich, like so many American doctors seem to be in, in the healthcare business for. So we're talking about profit and non-profit companies. Has looking at European countries given you insight as to what the right place is for privatization and what type of services should be handled by the government and which services should be be handled by nonprofits? Well, you know, I mean, I think there's no fixed answer to that. It really depends on time and place and and some. Um, Services and businesses that maybe were are, were run by the government at one time need to be privatized to some degree, and other things that were left in the hands of the private sector need to become some sort of a public-private mix. Uh, I mean, I think really the key, in, in a more general way, is creating a system that's flexible and has the ability to respond to market incentives. And that's what really we've seen in the U.S. really doesn't have uh, with the collapse of the economy and the deregulation that went on. You really didn't have any regulators that could help the market to respond to the market's own incentives. Um, Whereas in Europe, they have uh, other institutions that they've crafted to create a more refined public-private mix. Uh, For example, uh, I'll use Germany again. because Germany was the pioneer in uh, uh, what's called co-determination. With co-determination, I mean, Germany has many Fortune 500 companies, um, you know, like Volkswagen and Daimler and Mercedes and um, BMW and uh, Deutsche Bank and and, and many, many uh, Fortune 500 companies. Um, And and these are for-profit companies, just like we have in the United States. But what is different about Germany is that they passed a law uh, for co-determination, which means that by law, these Fortune 500 companies um, must allow the workers to elect 50% of the members of the board of directors of each of these companies. 
Uh, I mean, you know, that's think about that and what a huge difference that is. I mean, it would be as if we had a law in the United States requiring Walmart to allow its workers to elect 50 percent of the members of the board of directors. And, you know, I tell most audiences this sort of thing. They they laugh because it's inconceivable that we would have a law forcing Walmart to do that. And yet in, in Germany, Sweden, many other European member states, this is just common practice. In some of them, the the, uh, the percentage varies. In Sweden, instead of workers getting elected fifty percent, they get to elect a third of the members of the board. But the, the the concept is the same. And so, what this leads to is much more of a a culture of consultation, in which the uh, the workers and the um, CEO and the leadership of the business are locked at the hip in discussing ways that are going to make the company be healthy and prosper, but not in a way that, you know, like we've had, like I said earlier, where American workers end up getting no uh, wage increases for essentially the last uh, couple of decades. Um, There's much more negotiation over these things in a way that has proven to be healthy, and they've actually uh, polled uh, CEOs and executives of these companies and saying, what do you think of this co-determination thing? And, you know, they say, yeah, sure, it's a pain. In many ways, I don't like it. But they acknowledge that it actually, in many ways, is better for the company. It facilitates more communication. It facilitates um, the company being uh, more united in terms of the goals and the strategies to achieving those goals so that workers are working um, more as, you know, the counter lever to, um, to the executives and leadership in the business to make sure that the company is healthy and prosperous. So um, these sorts of uh, institutional uh, advances, I, I believe they are, really has made, uh, I think, Europe sort of, you know, capitalism 3.0, if you will, um, the next stage in capitalism compared to what we have here in the United States. That's very interesting, um, and, and it sounds like you 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 acknowledge that there's some some tension there that there are some of the the managers or executives that would prefer not to have it that way if they had their choice. Uh, why don't they get their way, uh, and why does why does this system persist? Yeah, I mean they you know the the CEOs everywhere if they would have their way uh they'd have no regulation at all and 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 that way european CEOs and executives are not that different than uh american CEOs and executives in fact european businesses are often eager to establish a branch here in the united states because they don't have to deal with things like co-determination um the reason why it persists is because The laws say it must persist, and there's widespread support within these European member states to pretty much keep it that way, even given the current economic challenges. And when you read some of the the speeches of uh, Chancellor Angela Merkel of Germany, who is the center-right leaders, you know, the Christian Democrats, they are the conservatives, in other words, uh, you know, they sound like, I mean, she talks about social Europe and social Germany, and we have to preserve the social aspect of our economy. Um, there's no attempt by conservatives, for the most part, in Europe to roll p- back these sorts of institutional advances. They might try to tweak them. They might try to gain a little bit more leverage or wiggle room around negotiations. But basically, 
there is broad consensus across the political spectrum in Europe that these sorts of advances are good for not only individuals and families, but it's good for the overall economy. And so, um, you know, that's, and, and as I said, these things are institutionalized by law. And, you know, it, and that also goes for labor laws. Labor unions tend to be more powerful in many European member states compared to here in the United States. And for the most part, again, there's pretty widespread support for that. Uh, you know, there is certainly tension around that. It's not like it's one big happy situation at all. But there's just really no consensus, even on the right, to roll back uh, labor unions, social legislation, uh, laws, and regulations that uh, keep the economy in a way that creates this more broadly shared prosperity, and as well as has created an economy that is actually putting out less carbon than um, here in the United States. I mean, the ecological side of the coin is really much more advanced there in Europe. I mean, you know, despite their economy be, be doing, uh, be, creating so much wealth, the average European is emitting half the carbon of the average American. And so, uh, and, you know, using half the electricity, their automobiles get far more better mileage than ours do. And so, you know, these things all go hand in hand as part of this comprehensive European way. You, you mentioned at the outset uh, European electoral systems, proportional representation. I would guess part of the reason these policies exist and, you know, the policies that have these the broad support among the population is that the legislatures in Europe reflect what the people want. I mean, would you agree? Yes, for the most part, over time, I think that there, I mean, the research by people like Aaron Leipart and others have shown that um, these, uh, these democracies based on proportional representation, which creates multi-party democracy, more than two parties, um, are closer to the mean of the policy preferences of average voters uh, compared to here in the United States and other democracies that use the uh, winner-take-all, you know, single-member district um, highest vote-getter-wins method that we have here in the United States. Is, are these reforms possible on the scale of the United States, given the larger size of the United States and the different electoral system, uh, or is it only something that can happen on the scale of these smaller countries um, with different electoral systems? Uh, well, you know, I mean, in the U.S., we do have 50 individual states, and, and so we certainly could, uh, you know, states could adopt proportional representation systems uh, for their state legislatures and local uh, government. Um, and, in fact, uh, they even could do it for members of Congress if Congress were to simply relax the um, single-member district requirement that we have that only dates to 1967. I mean, prior to 1967, there were states that elected members of Congress from, using an at-large uh, statewide system instead of doing it district by district, one seat at a time. And it was only, this law was only passed in 1967 to support the 1965 Voting Rights Act um, so that they could draw districts to elect racial minorities, particularly African-Americans in the 1960s. 
and uh, which was certainly a, a you know at the time a good thing to do because African Americans had no representation at all. Um, but now, flash forward 50 years later, and in many ways that law is holding us back um, because it's it's not allow it's 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 creating it's perpetuating this two-party duopoly in which voters don't really have any choice. In fact, our, our system really isn't even a two-party system because, you know, we can tell you right now, uh, prior to the 2014 congressional elections, who's going to win 90% of the seats. Uh, things are so predictable. We can not only tell you who's going to win, we can tell you the margin of victory because the the, and it's not because of who draws the district lines, in most cases, contrary to popular uh, myth. It's because voters ha- have just moved into these residential partisan enclaves. You know, the coasts are dominated by Democrats and liberals and progressives. The interior areas and rural areas are more dominated by conservatives. And, and the other side can't win in the other strongholds, no matter how you draw the district lines. And so... The frame of reference for most voters where they live is of a one-party system. One party dominates, um, you know, the local elections in often cases, the state and uh, the uh, you know the U.S. House races and even statewide races. State like California, uh, where I live, every statewide uh, office is held by a Democrat, as if there are no Republicans in this state that deserve are deserving of representation at the statewide level. And it's because there, it's a blue state, as it's called. There are too many Democrats here compared to Republicans. And it turns out most states are this skewed to one side or another. It has nothing to do with who's drawing the district lines, because these are statewide elections. So um, this sort of system has really reached its endgame for America. Uh, you know, we're a very multi-partisan, multi-ethnic, multi-worldwide webbed world today, very diverse, and yet our political system does not represent or respond to that diversity very easily. And so, and so I think by starting at the state level and passing proportional representation systems, and if Congress were to relax that 1967 law and just give the option to states to elect their members of Congress by proportional representation, um, then they could pass that at the state level as well. And I really think that this is the, uh, is the future for America as we move further into this 21st century. So if people are are reading this book and they like what they read about Europe and they find some policies that they feel strongly about is a change in the electoral system, the first step, and what's the scale at which efforts are effective? Is it the state, the cities? Does it need to be national? Well, I mean, the, the federal level is pretty broken right now, uh, obviously. Uh, I mean, just look at the recent gun control issues showed that 80 to 90 percent of Americans, including most Republicans, supported background check. And uh, Congress is so broken, you know, in the Senate, the filibuster, as well as the disproportional representation in the Senate where, you know, uh, two senators from California represent with a state with 38 million people. Uh, those 38 million people have the same representation as a state like Wyoming with only a half a million people. And so that has meant that it only takes 40 senators, Republican senators, and those 40 senators only represent a third of the nation, and they can stop what senators representing the other two-thirds of the nation want. And, and, and then you add in, you know, in the U.S. House, 
where it's controlled by Republicans who seem to be committed to just preventing Obama from passing anything, um, the federal level is pretty broken uh, for the conceivable future. So that, to me, suggests that the place to start passing any reforms, for the most part, is at the local and state levels. And, uh, you know, there are 10, uh, actually, I think there's even now 12 states, for example, where Democrats have what's called a trifecta. Um, they, they, they control both the governor's mansion and both houses of the state legislature. In those states with the Democratic trifecta, there is nothing preventing them from passing many, many reforms um, like they already have in Europe. Uh, there's no Fox News ditto heads. There's no Republican obstructionism. There's no filibuster stopping them. And yet, unfortunately, in most of these states, these Democrats still aren't, aren't doing anything. So, you know, citizens are going to have to really get out there and start agitating for some of these changes. Um, you know, for example, you, one simple one uh, that they have all across Europe. In fact, most established democracies have this. It's called universal voter registration. In most democracies, if you have 18 and are eligible to vote and have a pulse, you are automatically registered to vote. There's nothing you have to do. You don't have to fill out any cards or anything. You're just automatically registered to vote. If we had that here in the United States, um, approximately 30 million Americans who are eligible to vote but are unregistered, and you know that's about 30% of the electorate, would be automatically registered. And this is a reform that can actually be passed at the state level. And so these... 12 or so Democratic trifecta states should get on the stick and pass such a reform because not only is it the right thing to do by, you know, getting everyone who's eligible to vote registered and capable of voting, but it also would benefit Democrats because most of the people who tend to be eligible unregistered are young people and minorities. And so this is a, a reform that <laughs> the Democrats, I mean, Republicans fight it every place they can because uh, they know what's at stake, and yet Democrats aren't moving forward with this as fast as they possibly can. It just boggles the mind why Democrats are uh, so clueless in these ways, and yet that is, that is, in fact, the case. So I think it's really citizens are going to have to get involved and really make this happen. You can't sit back and allow, wait for leaders. I mean, so many people sat back after Obama got elected and thought that, you know, this, this rising uh, audacity of hope was going to fix everything. Well, that didn't. That strategy didn't work out too well. It, citizens need to get more involved. When you when you speak to groups uh, about the book and, and you you tell them about these policies in Europe, uh, are there policies you find that have very broad appeal, uh, not only to Democrats but to Republicans or people who don't identify with one of the other parties as well? Uh, what what party? What policies do you find get the the strongest reactions from the people you speak with? Well, some of the ones that um, seem to have broad appeal, you know, I mean, uh, for example, America, the United States is one of the few uh, countries in the world that does not have mandatory paid sick leave, um, and so that means you have workers who are sick and showing up to work infecting all their co-workers, uh, many of these workers tend to be ones who work in restaurants. That means they're handling your food when you go to a restaurant. 
And, um, it, you know, it really doesn't make any sense. And so when I'm on, uh, you know, conservative talk radio or when I'm talking with Republicans, when I mention something like this, you know, pretty much most of them acknowledge, yeah, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You know, making sh- having workers who can't afford to stay home um, when they're sick and having them show up to work, infecting their coworkers and infecting food and infecting other products they're selling to the public, uh, th- there doesn't seem to be any uh, too many people that, d- that don't agree that that just doesn't make any sense. And so there's an example where it seems to me that legislatures, whether at the state or federal level should, uh, you know, should try to pass this on a bipartisan way, working out the details in a way that appeals to both the left and the right. And is the, the idea that, uh, that, that taxpayers would fund those, those sick days or that businesses would or states or federal? Well, businesses fund it for the most part, but they pass the cost for the most part onto their customers. And so in the end, we all pay for it, but we pay for it just a little bit. I mean, this is the whole concept of, you know, a, a con- what, what is very common in Europe is what is called social insurance uh, that Americans don't really quite seem to get. Uh, you know, in, in Europe, the, the, the attitude is that we as individuals, as workers, as families, we all pretty much face the same risks, you know, of getting sick of, uh, you know, having children and having, uh, be, having to be, uh, having, wanting to have enough uh, uh, wealth to support those children. We all face these risks, risks in common. So we should devise our systems so that we, um, we uh, you know, benefit from them in common. And, and so that's what they call social insurance. And so social insurance works in the way that, as I said, you know, you, you can do it uh, through the businesses. They become the instrument for administering these types of social insurance. But then they, in turn, pass many of the costs that they experience onto their customers who pay for it so that we collectively pay for this. But, I mean, this is also done in Europe. For example, a college education in Europe is quite a bit less expensive than it is here. And yet many Americans are frantically frantically stuffing tens of thousands of dollars into various private savings vehicles for their children's college education, yet most European students don't pay that much in the way of tuition, which means they don't graduate from college with such a huge debt burden like American students did. Child care. Child care in the United States costs more than $12,000 annually for a family of two. In some countries in Europe, child care is free in the sense of, you know, they pay their taxes and then they get child care along with them, any other things. Other uh, member states in Europe are paying maybe $1,000, $2,000 per year. So Americans are paying uh, six times more at least for things like child care. We pay more out of pocket for retirement, um, you know, compared to most European member states. We pay more out of pocket for senior care. I already mentioned paid sick leave paid parental leave and you know and this is what we is often Americans call the welfare state we do it der- we say that derogatorily but in fact in my book it's what i call the workfare state because it's not about people kicking back on the dole it's about how do you provide the support for families and workers so that they can go out there and be healthy and be productive workers and in and in point of fact because they create these pools of social insurance where they can create 
things like a healthcare system and a child care system. They can create these things in a way that is cheaper and more cost effective than we can here in the United States with our decentralized hodgepodge systems. I mean, this is why Europeans can create healthcare systems for half the amount of money per capita that we're paying here in the United States and have better results from their healthcare system. That's why they can create a childcare system where they're paying a sixth of what we're paying here in the United States, on and on and on. And it's because by creating these pockets of social insurance and then designing these systems in a very cost-effective way, they can actually provide these things for, for less money than we can here in the United States. So again, this is not about welfare. This is capitalism, but it's social capitalism. It's about how do you provide things for families and individuals, individuals in a way that's going to support them and, and, and that's cost-effective at the same time. If listeners want to find out more about um, these policies and organizations that might work for them, where can they go? Uh, they can go to, uh, well, to my website where I write about these things for many different uh, magazines and newspapers and publications. Um, my website is www.stephen-hill.com, and that's Stephen with a V. Um, the website for my book, Europe's Promise, is just simply europespromise.org. Um, and, you know, outside of that, I mean, there's uh, lots of different websites that have, you know, depending on what you're interested in, healthcare and what have you, different types of analyses. The uh, website for the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, known as the OECD, is quite a valuable resource for comparative statistics. Um, between countries, between the U.S. and various European member states. Uh, so, and the, the uh, website of the International Monetary Fund, IMF, is also very uh, helpful for researches, for, for uh, comparative purposes and such. So, um, you know, but other than that, I mean, you just have to kind of Google things if, for specific information that you're looking for. I, I should also mention the, the book is, is very well-researched. It's it's very readable and it's it's full of interesting stories, um, but it's also got a lot of great footnotes. It's well cited, so it can lead people, I think, to some good resources. Yeah, I re um, I really tried to write it for the general reader, um, but also stuff it full enough of facts and and uh, information that it would be useful for researchers and uh, professors and academics. Uh, it's it's been assigned to many many. Uh, classes uh, to, uh, that are interested in, in Europe and transatlantic politics and comparative politics. There's also information in the book comparing uh, the U.S. and Europe to China, because China is the other, um, you know, supposed future superpower. And so I look a little bit at China and, and compare it to Europe and to the U.S. as well. So what's uh, your next project, Stephen? Um, my next project is actually taking off from this book, Europe's Promise, and uh, what I just said is a great segue, is, is going more in the direction of comparing the development models between China, Europe, and the United States, and looking at how those are going to play out in the 21st century, um, you know, particularly looking at, um, you know, the world is facing two immense challenges that we've really never faced before. And the first one is how do we, uh, uh, um, you know, allow a, a planet of eight, seven to eight billion people 
enjoy a decent standard of living, uh, you know, how do we allow, allow the Chinese and the Indians and the Brazils to have their seat at the table, which they uh, undeser- uh, obviously deserve? Um, and how do we do that without burning up the planet in the process through excess carbon emissions and greenhouse gases and, uh, you know, a Venus atmosphere of our own creation? And even for those who are global warming uh, doubter- doubters, uh, you know, there are other um, pressure, environmental pressures that we are going to face uh, you know, including uh, water and air, and you know, you look at what's happening in China and what's happening to their air and their environment, where they're basically poisoning themselves um, in in rapid sequence. Uh, you know, these are, and you know, you look at the trace minerals that we use in things like our our iPhones and other uh, electronic gadgets. Uh, these sorts of things are going to run out, and um, you know, and and it, are we going to basically? Uh, descend into, uh, you know, fighting each other over dwindling resources, or are we going to figure out a way for all of us to live together and share the planet, essentially? That's the big challenge of the 21st century. And so my next book project is is basically looking at this, um, looking at the uh, these different development models, looking at specific institutions, and what our institutions are going to be the ones that are most likely to take us further into this 21st century in a way that um, would allow, uh, you know, a, sort of a, a global um, civilization uh, and not have become one that just descends into, you know, something like Europe in the 15th, 16th, and 17th centuries where everyone was, was savaging each other uh, militarily. So this is uh, uh, the next project that I'm working on. Well, I'll look forward to reading that. Stephen Hill, thank you very much for, for joining me tonight. Well, uh, my pleasure. Yeah, Ryan, it's been my great pleasure. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to New Books in Politics on the New Books Network. We've been talking with Stephen Hill about his book, Europe's Promise, Why the European Way is the Best Hope in an Insecure Age. The book is available from University of California Press. Thanks for joining us.